The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, wherever you're watching or listening to us. This is our Premier League on NBC podcast, which is our way of connecting with you during what is obviously a really difficult time that the world is experiencing. Joining me today, the whole crew, Arlo White, Carl Martino, Robbie Masto, Robbie Earl, Graham Lasso, and Mr. Lee Dixon. Now, Graham Lasso, as you can see, lives Ooh. in a forest, and therefore his internet <laughs> connection is not the best. So we apologize in advance if Graham Lasso is a little stuttery throughout this um, podcast. Now, the topic today, we have talked about how COVID-19 and coronavirus are going to affect the Premier League season. I think you've covered that situation for now, especially as since we were last on last week, there hasn't really been any more breaking news or any more developments. So today's topic is what is your favourite football memory? We're going to go round the chats, but before we get to that, I just want to share some information for you. Now, of course, we don't have any live football, but that doesn't mean we don't have plenty of other content for you available and for free, because right now we are offering free access to the Premier League Pass on NBC Sports Gold. We've got on-demand games, we've got analysis from the shows, we've got documentaries, we've got tons of other contests as well. Absolutely no cost to you at all. To start streaming that, just go to nbcsports.com slash free, and you can come into the Gold family absolutely for free and get loads of content which will keep you entertained through what is a tough time. Okay chaps, let's get to it. Let's rewind some years, some more than others. It's going to be interesting for your favourite ever football memory, Arlo White. Oh, okay. Um, well, it won't surprise you perhaps um, that my memory comes from the 2015-16 season and obviously <clears throat> being a lad from Leicester, uh, who announced on Twitter when I went to Seattle from the BBC to be the voice of the Sounders that I was, in fact, a Leicester City fan. Um, rest assured, I played down the middle objectively whenever they play, and, and we're calling their games. But that season was so special and so remarkable um, that to be a part of it and to have a front-row seat for the, uh, for the running in particular um, was something I, I still pinch myself about now, Bex. Um, I'd say from that season... And it's kind of a personal memory, but after the, the title was sealed on the Monday night, the Battle of Stamford Bridge and Eden Hazard's equaliser um, for the 2-2 draw with Spurs, which meant that Leicester were, were champions and we all saw the, 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 the scenes in Jamie Party's house and, uh, and the celebrations were, were incredible. But the, the trophy presentation day was the following Saturday at the King Power Stadium. And uh, the game was against Everton. And I spent a couple of days just letting it all sink in. Graham, if you remember, you took me for a, an Italian meal on the King's Road, didn't you, after, the, after the, the title was sealed. And we shared a bottle of red wine and it was all just sinking in at just what an achievement that was. But anyway, one, one second, day, one second, one second, one second. I had one glass of that bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, and I took another one to go back on the car journey home as well. Um, <laughs> News up. <laughs> 
par for the course. Um, so on the, on the trophy giving day, I thought Leicester did a very good job. Um, and that story emerged that Andrea Bocelli uh, was aware of what was going on. He was friends with Claudio Ranieri um, and, and actually got in touch with Claudio and said, look, I'd like to be part of your big day. I'd like to be part of the celebration. So Claudio said, well, of course, uh, come across. And Leicester flew him in. Um, and I was in the ground probably three hours before uh, the kickoff. And I just wanted to let it all sink in wanted to enjoy it, wanted to be alone on the gantry just for a bit, just to collect myself before what was, you know, a very emotionally charged day. And I'm there two hours before doing a few notes on the gantry. And um, there's a stage that's set up in the, in the centre of the pitch. And Andrea Bocelli, uh, with, with, with help from his wife, I think it was, uh, walked out onto the pitch, got onto the stage, and the strains of Nessing Dormer came out of the PA system. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Now... All the, all the English guys will, will know on the call and, and who are watching and listening um, that Nesson Dormer has a real affinity for us with football because it was the BBC's theme tune for the 1990 World Cup in Italy, one of the greatest World Cups ever. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a tune that's, that's sort of charged with football emotion. And that was a World Cup that England went to the semi-final. So anyway, so I think, right, so this is, this is going to be a moment. And Andrea Bocelli rehearses like he's live in front of 100,000 people. And it was such a magnificent, moving moment that I started having tears, welling up, tears coming down the cheeks, thinking, I still cannot believe that this is happening. And I looked around left and right, and there must have been 20 people in the stadium at that time watching this. And we're watching Andrea Bocelli sing Nesson Dorma for 20 people before Leicester get the, the Premier League trophy. It was absolutely astonishing. And I'm glad I did get into position that early on because I was able to get the tears out of the way and the emotion out of the way. So then I could just call the, the action and call the occasion um, live without any problems. Um, just a unique and very, very special moment that I'll never forget. I've got to say, Arlo, I think differently now, Leicester obviously are, are a bigger club, but Crystal Palace and Leicester down the years, not too different at times in size. And yeah. the idea of that ever happening in my life, of witnessing a, a situation like that or a scene like that after my after Palace winning the Premier I mean, mm. I think I remember saying to you at the time, I think you're done, Arlo. I think you're done with life. I mean, that's just all yeah. there is to it after that. I mean, Life. Completed it, mate. Facts, <laughs> <laughs> if Palace won the title, who'd be singing in the middle of the stage now? <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Williams. <laughs> Take that. Good yeah. point. Alison Moyer, Massive Palace fan. Oh. You're right in there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Massive Palace fan. Bit of Eddie Izzard doing the backing track as well. It'd be amazing. Keith <laughs> Jensen sort of just around. Yeah, just around. Just around. I think everyone who doesn't support one of these big, big, big clubs um, can understand what an amazing moment, Arlo, that would have been for you. Um, and we, the rest of us, just live in hope that one day we might too have a moment like that. Um, Robbie Muster, I'm going to come to you um, because your moment was massive for two reasons. Yeah, I just listened to Arlo there. I think it's 20 years before his moment. So this is kind of mid-90s, and quick bit of background. We had Steve Gibson take over our club, Middlesbrough, uh, at Ayrson Park, and he wanted to invest a lot of money. And the first thing he did was bring in 
player manager Brian Robson, an absolute legend of the game. I know we all know Brian Robson really well, and I'm, sh- I'm sure most of you um, will have heard him as well. But him to come to our club was a big deal. And it was to get us out of Ayrson Park into a new stadium that the chairman had funded. The Riverside Stadium was going to be ready at the start of 95-96 season. But of course, we're still in the championship. We're still at Ayrson Park. But that season at Ayrson Park was a great season. Robson made a big difference to us. And we did get promoted into the Premier League for the new stadium. So that was incredibly exciting. Uh, me and my wife were settled into the, uh, into the area, Teesside area. We got a little house. Um, and we were expecting our first, our first child uh, going into that new season. Now, like most new stadiums, um, it was behind. So going into this Premier League season, the place had sold out. It was 30,000 all-seater stadium, lovely new stadium. Around the 90s, plenty of clubs were making these stadiums. But it was very exciting for, for people around Middlesbrough. The new stadium, new manager, new players, uh, and a new Premier League season. Um, and we had to wait. So our stadium wasn't ready. So the first few games of the season were away, away from home quite a lot. Um, and then the game was scheduled, first home game, uh, August 25th, 1995. Now, for many reasons, for me, I mean, I'm sure like Graham and Lee can tell stories of championships. And I, and I would kill to be able to give you those stories. But it's a little different. Everybody can't have that tremendous experience. Experience. I can only imagine how great it must be. But getting into the Premier League in a new stadium uh, is a big deal. And it was a big deal. First home game, Chelsea, big club, came to our stadium to open the stadium. Um, and it was a great game. We had a brilliant match. I started. Uh, we played really well. We won the game 2-0. Craig Hignett was the first player to score a goal at Riverside Stadium. So it was a fantastic day at the Riverside that day. And, and everybody went home, of course, really happy. We did. We went out with Jamie Pollock. Jamie Pollock was my midfield partner. Um, got on really well with him and his girlfriend. So we went, uh, as you did back then, for a couple of years. So to celebrate the day, we go to a little pub um, just in the, 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 uh, the next... Where is this going? I know. Um, <laughs> so it was all, all good. I had a couple of beers. And Caroline, you know, she's you know, heavily pregnant at this point. Uh, anyway, we had a great night. We had dinner. And towards the end, Caroline's like... I don't feel very good. Like, I think something's happening. So I'm like, well, I've had, a, I've, had a couple of, I've had a couple of beers. But anyway, needs must. We jump, it's not that funny. So, so we jump in the car, we drive home, we pick up the little bag, you know, our little bag that we're all ready to go to the hospital. I'm all ready, got a little bit of food in there, all the stuff that you meant to pack away, ready to go to the hospital. Um, and yes, we drove to the hospital, North Tees, 10 minutes away, and I remember being in that elevator getting up to the maternity ward. Caroline was in absolute agony, in pain. Um, and we got up there, and I, I promise, in half an hour, Elliot was born. So my firstborn, wow. the same day that we opened the Riverside Stadium and won the game, we had this amazing night as well where Elliot James was born, and of course, a date that we'll never forget um, for the birth of our son, but also the birth of the Riverside Stadium and our season in the Premier League. And uh, just an amazing story. Most of my other memories are blimmin' horrible ones, a relegation and tough times. But that, that was a great <laughs> <laughs> memory. 
So when it's Elliot's birthday every year, are you partly celebrating Elliot and then also partly secretly celebrating? <laughs> Not really. I mean, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Because always, you know, you always get Middlesbrough fans, and the club will tweet out stuff about the birthday. You know, big birthdays. Uh, for the Riverside Stadium, and I always put a little bit on online, like, well, yeah, it's a big day as well for me as well, you know, with Elliot being born. So, no, Rusty. just uh, lovely memories. Rusty, did you consider Selnet and Riverside as names? <laughs> sorry? <laughs> oh, Never sorry. Mind. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Well, Selnet's behind me, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of yeah. my shirts. Of... <laughs> Rusty, can I go back to the bag? You know, the bag in the cupboard that was packed with the food. Was the food for you, obviously, because we know you. <laughs> I'm Caroline's an ama amazing, amazing cook. So but you not... made a cook, you made a bake some food for you to put in the bags. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. I'm just, I'm just amazed he didn't take the golf bag by accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were all oh my God. great. I mean, she was so great. I mean, honestly, like half an hour. It was, it was get it done, nice work. Robbie, is the um, did you have any issues that first season in terms of you know moving stadium, especially you know Essen Park was you know a bit of a fortress. It was a hard place to go to. Going to Riverside, nice modern stadium. Did you have any sort no, of issues that first season? No, we didn't, Graham. I mean, Essen Park was it, it, it's historic. I mean, it was one of the stadiums in the World mm. Cup in 1966 that England won, um, but it was old and rickety, and the fans were ready. I mean, it wasn't one of those where you move stadiums and the fans are all too nostalgic and not happy about it. This was so much bigger, so much better. Um, mm. So the fans were excited to go there. And in general, like I often say, when Rebecca knows, I've said it loads of times over the years now with our coverage, that the euphoria from promotion, and particularly you add in a new stadium and new players and new investment, I mean, it kept us going for, it kept us going right through towards Christmas time. And I think then we fell like a stone that season, but we finished mid-table, I think. Um, so it's absolutely fine. The season after that, we had some more problems that we'll tell another day. But that, that season with the euphoria grain from promotion and that start beating Chelsea, it just keeps you going. Motivation, running, you've got a little credit with the supporters. They're, they're excited. They're not going to give you a hammer if you don't play well or lose games. It was, uh, it was a really good season. Musty, that was the start of it all, though, wasn't it? You know, you, yeah. I mean, imagine trying to attract the players that you attracted because you you were very lucky in a, in as much as say very lucky. You were, you know, a, a guy who was at the club, loved the club for a long time, and then all of a sudden there was a transformation happening. The start of that was obviously the stadium. Imagine trying to get Ravanelli to come to the old You <laughs> <laughs> thought it was, a, you know, it was like the training ground or something. Really. He turned up and gone, "Where do we play the games? No, you put him here." <laughs> Not me, Piazza. Yeah, Raven, and he wasn't—he wasn't happy. I mean, we—we we had no training ground, and he, and he basically said in the press, "So you buy—you buy a Ferrari, you got no garage to put him in." <laughs> Amazing <laughs> line. Yeah. That, so, must, um, be, must be two years later when Lewis was born, half an hour into labour. Were you like, uh, "Cassie, come on, Elliot was born after <laughs> half an hour. Come on." <laughs> and you should say that. Knott's Forest away. Let up, sorry if I'm taking up too much time here. Not as far as the way. I've got my own room. I've had a, we've had a nice dinner. I've had a shower. I'm let on my bed. Phone rings. You need to get here. So I, think, I think something's happening. I'm like, wow. I'm like three hours away. I want to go to sleep. I've got a big game tomorrow. So the kit man, one of the players, big Nigel. Nigel Pearson had his car there because he was driving home afterwards. Kit man gets me in the car, hammers me back up to the Northeast Hospital again. And uh, anyway... Not so quick. So Caroline's not ready. So I'm like, 
I've got a big game tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, kept, I go into a little room nearby and I say, give us a, give us a shape where <laughs> she's getting ready. I had, a li- I had a little sleep for a couple of hours, get woke up. Kazi, amazing. Lewis is born at like 3 a.m., I think it was. Um, brilliant, marvellous, lovely. Back in the car, hammered back to the hotel in, in Nottingham. Uh, I had about three hours sleep, got up next day, played against Notts Forest. I think it was against Stuart Pearce, and, and we got hammered 5 0. So, um, apart from that, <laughs> that, hang on, you played against Stuart Pearce. You were playing right wing. Yes. Three hours sleep. Stuart Pearce hit a free kick and nearly took my head off. <laughs> I love it, Busty. I love it. Just oh, so many kids. stories. That is brilliant. Um, okay, who's next? Carmartina. <clears throat> um, speaking of Italians uh, and the 1990 World Cup, my, my, my uh, memory is a really amazing one with a bad part of it that's funny because I still love this memory. But um, 1986 World Cup, I only know. I, well, I was five at the time. I only know because of Diego Maradona and watching all those videos over the years. Sorry to bring that up, um, you know, obviously. <laughs> Uh, that was not a great game for England, but um, produced one of the best World Cup goals we've ever seen. 1990 was the first World Cup I think we had on TV here. And also, I was old enough to get it and old enough to be really into it at that, at that point. Had a lot of Italian relatives. I, I have an Italian passport. And so, it being in Italy, some of those players being, you know, the ones that I really started following growing up. Um, I, I got really the, the, the bug for a World Cup and understanding the size of that event. And then when it was announced we were going to have the next one in the States in 1994, I, I, I couldn't believe that um, this incredible circus was coming to our town. But um, it was so hard to get tickets. So we didn't, we didn't have any tickets to any of the games. And Italy was coming to play a giant stadium. And, and Roberto Baggio had become a, a hero of mine at that age. And I thought, you know, an hour and a half away, Roberto Baggio is going to be in a stadium and, and I, can't, I can't go watch that. And so it's, it's wild. There was, a, there was a contest where you would put in your um, team photos for your youth club teams. And it was some arbitrary thing by some corporate group. They were going to pick the best team photo and send – those those players to that world cup game and so i didn't think this was going to work it, it was more my personality at, at the time and kids don't do this at home and I, and I and i feel bad about it but it worked i was front center in the team photo with the ball and um and and, and kneeling down and holding the ball i decided to um spice up the photo a little bit and uh, flip the bird um down on the ball in a very in a very uh, secretive way thinking that'll be funny someone might see that someone won't we won the contest because of that. Um, my parents got really <laughs> mad at me because of that. Uh, so I was grounded, but they were like, you know, well done. You're going to go to this game. So, I, so I, I go to the game on the day. It's our whole team in this bus, and, and we go there. And we're in the parking lot, you know, tailgating, which, uh, which at Giant Stadium was never for, you know, a football match like this. So it was so wild to see – American football culture colliding with, you know, global football in this massive event and watching international people, you know, tailgating that either go to Giants games or have no idea who the Giants are and are just ready for this incredible match. So the game begins and um, 
it was the first time I saw a, a professional soccer game. So th this was my first introduction into professional soccer. It was a World Cup game. It was Italy. I'm standing there. I mean, I kind of like Arlo's story. I literally like had t like tears in my eyes the whole time. It was so amazing. Didn't take my eyes off the field. Italy got a red card. I think it was Dino Baggio who got a red card and they took off Roberto Baggio. <laughs> took off Roberto Baggio. Well, and and I, I could have just died right there in, in the stands. I, I sat down in my seat oh. and was devastated. Um, and then, you know, you know kind of got over it because the atmosphere just doesn't allow you to sulk for a second. Enjoy the game. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. If you all remember, it didn't end well for Roberto Baggio, um, but he went on to have this incredible tournament. I mean, the player of the tournament. Um, and two years later, we, we ended up having a the announcement we have a professional league. That World Cup brought professional soccer back to the country. And then a few, few years after that, you know, I'm a kid almost crying in his seat. Fast forward to playing in front of 68,000 in that very stadium with David Beckham next to me. It was a wild, uh, it was a wild few years, um, all culminating with an incredible career moment for me, but starting with a kid and seeing a World Cup for the first time. It was, it was, it was special. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I cannot believe that the only one on the call who's been able to watch a World Cup game in your home country. I mean, I, I just think that I, I, to be able to do that, obviously, and hopefully if I'm still in US in 2026, it's kind of an adopted home country. To be able to see a game would be amazing. But to be able to be in England and watch a World Cup game in your home country, I, I don't know, guys. I can't. I think that might be that's got to be up there with one of the best things you could ever do. Kyle, what, what, what's the 2026 World Cup going to do for US soccer? How, how can it bring it forward even more, do you think? Well, fortunately, we'll be in it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, honestly, um, to date, 1994 is the most successful World Cup from a business standpoint. I mean, think, think, of, think of how big that event was when the country wasn't really set up to enjoy the benefits of um, – the added exposure to this incredible game. I think at this point it becomes a, a, um, a force multiplier based on, you know, not only young kids growing up with all of these different leagues piped into to their homes and understanding and falling in love with the storylines and the players. I mean, to, to find Roberto Baggio when I was young was impossible. I had to be a, a, a detective to, to learn who he was. Um, so at that point, I, I just think the game um, obviously is past that point of needing to sort of justify itself in a crowded sports landscape. It, it's going to give it escape velocity. It's, it's going to be something really special for kids to fall in love with that game in this country and big kids like us to be able to witness a World Cup uh, on this home soil again. Carl, wasn't there a show that I keep getting told about this, uh, hosted by Toby Charles? Was it in the 80s? It was Italian soccer. And they had yeah. highlights just from Serie A, which, of course, at the time was probably the biggest league in the world, wasn't it, with the, with the greatest superstars. But that was kind of, it was tucked away on some cable channel, was it? And you really had to, like you say, be a detective to find it. But that was, at one point, the only soccer, as I understand it, on American TV. I mean, it was impossible. I mean, it, it's funny, like, I get asked this question, and you guys do too, and, and Lee and Graham, obviously occasionally you'll get asked this, but living here and covering the Premier League, we always get asked, you know, what does it mean for fans and all that stuff? And 
and kids being able to, remembering how hard it was, Arlo, to, to see those games on TV. I mean, kids sitting there with their iPads and their phones and their TVs <laughs> and, and, and picking, you know, between all these games is such a special thing. Carl, you know, back then you had like Roberto Baggio was your hero. Who was your American footballing hero? You know, obviously in England we had the Brian Robsons and, and the Linekers and those people that we grew up with or played against. And, you know, for you, who was the American guy who kind of was the one you, you wanted to, to emulate? Yeah, um, I'll, I, you know, I, I had a few, but I'll pick two players that meant a lot to me when I was little. Um, Tab Ramos. He, he, he was a, a number 10, and I was always out to be a number 10. I, I always wanted to be able to do something special and take players on. I loved how incredible he was on the ball and what he could do in a game. And then Mia Hamm. I mean, when I, when I was little, um, I, I thought of Mia Hamm like I thought of Michael Jordan. You know, I mean, they, they were in commercials together, so that, that helped the connection. But I just saw Mia Hamm take games over. And uh, I'm kind of bummed that, you know, my, my kids – yeah, it's going to be tough. I'm going to find all the footage, but my, my kids aren't going to remember me a ham like, like I did. So I'm, I'll make sure that I pass that on to them. That's interesting. Brilliant stuff. That's great. That's great. Um, Robbie, let's go to you. Um, okay, Rebecca, I'm going to slightly turn the camera away from myself. So it's, it's favorite moments, but when you're part of Wimbledon in the crazy gang, we were never blessed with what I would call too many game changes. You know, guys who can do something special in a moment that could win you a game. I mean, we had experts who could find Rosette like nobody else. I mean, <laughs> there are a few game stoppers. <laughs> <laughs> game stoppers, it was our, our thing. Um, but it was in, it's interesting because I know when, when we were given the, the uh, sort of topic of what we're going to talk about and favourite Premier League moments, and kind of looking back, I always used to think, the big moments for us at Wimbledon were playing the big boys. We didn't have the fortune of Graham and, and, and Lee of winning titles. It was when we played those big boys, how we could upset them, how we could stop them. And these two sort of big moments that stand out, Rebecca, that, that were kind of favourite moments, but in, in a reverse kind of way. And you know, we'll actually always go a little bit off-piece. So, in some respects, an, an Italian thread on, on one would be Paolo Di Canio's Super goal for West Ham around 1999-2000. And again, I had one of the best seats in the house because I'm about maybe 15 yards away from Di Canio. As this, this long crossfield ball is coming towards him. And the first thing I remembered as the ball was coming was he wasn't sort of stepping to the ball to go and embrace it as you would do maybe to chest control or knee control or get it down. He kind of stepped away from the ball, which is a weird thing. To, took a step back. And then kind of jumped in the air. And as he was doing it, it just wasn't coming to me. I'm like, what's he doing? And then all of a sudden, Bex, he does this kind of bicycle kick connection thing that flies into the roof of the net. It goes past our goalkeeper. He does the hand, the old Italian, like, don't come near me. I'm something special. So <laughs> it's just you and me. And I've got to be honest, if a camera was on me at the time, I think I always remember going, I mean, it doesn't matter who you're playing for. It doesn't matter what's at stake. These moments of brilliance, back that sometimes when you're a Premier League footballer, you, you, you have to embrace and, and, and compliment when you were there. The second, the, the second one, and I always think, you know, David Beckham's a global star now. 
he has the Wimbledon uh, Super Dons to uh, to thank in many ways for that. So, <laughs> 1996, we're playing at Sellers Park. The stadium's full, 20,000 Manchester United fans, about 5,000 Wimbledon fans, as, as you would expect. And Robbie Musto's already broken this play down. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere where Earl apparently was floundering, was his phrase, in midfield. As the ball came to David Beckham, now David Beckham's <laughs> halfway line. Again, I've got the best seat in the house. I'm probably 10 yards away from him. And, he, and I see him pull his foot back. And, and as he pulls his foot back, I think, what's he doing? What is he doing? And his connection on the ball, the moment his connection on the ball, I thought, ooh, ooh, problem. And then I looked, <laughs> I looked back at the goalkeeper, who was Neil Sullivan, so, uh, Scottish international, great guy. I see Sully's face, and I see him start backtracking towards his line. And I know he's in trouble. And the, the, he's gone back, dive backwards towards his goal. The ball's gone in the back of the net. Bex has just stood there with his arms out. I think it's Brian McClare and, and Roy Keane and people are jumping over him. And from that moment on, David Beckham was known in, in the footballing world and, and went on to have a brilliant career. And it, it's those moments, Bex, that people talk to me about. People always say, you know, uh, oh, do you remember the Beckham goal, was it? I was there, by the way. I was 10 yards away from him. Do you remember the Paolo Di Canio goal? Best goal the Hammers ever scored. Yeah, I was pretty close to that as well. And in some ways for Wimbledon, I say we didn't have that player. Lee, had, we, we, Dennis Burkamp was always a problem. You couldn't deal with Dennis because he was intelligent, great footballer, saw all the options. Gianfranco Zola at Chelsea was one who, who, who um, Graham played with, who would just disrupt the midfield, just play in a position that was so difficult to play. So our challenge every week, Vex, was... How are we going to stop these great players having an effect on the game? And, and there was times we man marked them, there was times we were physical, there were times we tried to impose ourselves. But when we got a result, that was like us winning the league. When we stopped a Dennis Burkamp or, or a Gianfranco Zola or, or Matt Letizia when he went to Southampton, who could have moments, these guys, and be brilliant. Um, and it was just part of my moments were... Just that challenge of what the Premier League brings every week to you. And I always say to people over, over a pint in a pub, you know, Wimbledon were involved with some of the greatest goals in the Premier League. <laughs> Most of them were going in our net, but we still... <laughs> Robbie, yeah. Robbie, when you yeah, look back... Funny, the... Go on, Ollie. I was just going to say, Robbie, when you look back and, and yeah. you go into these games and you want to, to stop what the opposition are doing yeah. and then, you know, nick a result here or there, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's kind of the style and it was very effective. But can you recall a game where you didn't get near them? They were so good that, that there was nothing, you, you couldn't lay a glove on them. Let me give you a little story. <laughs> this, again, this, this again could be, um, you could check the, the facts on this. So Alex Ferguson, after his thousandth game, was asked by a reporter, what's the most important game in your thousand? And bizarrely, he said something like, 1993, it was 1994, Sellers Park, away at Wimbledon, Joe Kinney had Wimbledon going well, and Vinnie Jones hit Eric Cantona about this high with a two-footy tackle. I swear, it's one of the worst challenges I've ever seen. Cantona goes down in a heap. And it was around the time of the class of 92, all the kids were there, Scolzi and, and, and Gonad and Nicky Butt, and they were like rabbit in the lights. Their eyes were like that. It was like, wow. You know, Vinny, the big man, just hit their guy. Cantona picked himself up, put his collar up, dusted his shirt down and gone, 
okay, something in industrial language I won't say. He said, let's play. I've got to tell you, from that moment on, we never saw the ball for the next 70 minutes. They, I mean, passed us to death. I mean, joking, he was throwing a towel in on the pitch. We, we got hammered the day, and it was the day that we realised we couldn't impose ourselves on Manchester United because the teams who were quite scared of, of the, the story and, and the, the background and the personalities. But once Manchester United played and won two and passed it round us, honestly, it was one of those where I said to Jonah, you have to hit him up there. Look what you've done to us now. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, when De Canio came to West Ham, Robbie, and you were talking yeah. about, you know, the fact that sometimes he would do things and he'd basically say to anyone, don't come near me, I'm, you know, I'm a genius. Yeah. Apparently he had his, because we all wore big shirts, didn't we? That was the, mm -hmm. the look in the 90s. Yeah. He had his taken to a tailor in a Italian oh, tailor right. in London and cut to size. So if you look at his shirt, <laughs> that's really fitted. So the ego has landed. Yeah. That is brilliant. You used to do that with your shorts, Graham. <laughs> 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 All right, I've left a couple of underachievers to the end. So I'm going to go um, for Lee Dixon's story next, please. Well, I, I haven't got any double birth stories. Um, <laughs> I feel a bit left out with that one. Um, I, my obvious one, which I'm not going to do, is the 89 Michael Thomas last minute. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, but I've done that one a million times with the book's been written the documentary's been made so i'm kind of going to stay away from that one and the aguero on amazon lee by any chance <laughs> on amazon yeah you can yeah get right blu-ray yeah. Blu dvd the link on the bottom just click the link <laughs> <laughs> too many amazing memories i just can't pick one <laughs> and the Aguero moment being a City fan obviously stands out as well but it, I, I can't get away from the, the uh, winning, the, winning the double in 98 for me um, because I was 89 was very young I was very young and it was wet behind the ears it all came very quickly and we didn't really know how to behave afterwards we didn't it kind of didn't sink in for quite a few years but the 98 one I was you know I was mature I was 30, whatever it was. Um, I was 30. 37. Yeah. <laughs> I was 34. And we we were, a re you know, Anelka had just signed. Mark Overmars had just come into the team. Uh, Pat um, Patrick was already there. Manu Petit just came in. We kind of, we, we were a force to be reckoned with. Going into that season, we actually thought at the start of the season we could win the double. And then... The way the season went, Man United had a, had a brilliant run and, and we ended up in March going to Old Trafford, uh, 11 points behind them, albeit we had three games in hand. But we knew, and it's that game, it all boiled down to that game for me that season. And it came to a point during the second half, it was nil-nil, and there was, a, there was just a feeling, you could almost, it, I wish I could have bottled it at that moment. There was a, And the lads will tell you sometimes, when you get into a game, you kind of know the next thing that's going to happen. You're in the flow. The game's going your way. You, you, you feel in the ascendancy. And you kind of know you're going to score. And, you, and invariably, you do. And I think that moment when, we, when Mark Overmars got the flick on from Anelka, went through and scored. When the, when the ball went in the net, I remember the lads coming back. And there was, a, there was almost... Everyone's kind of looked at each other on the pitch. And it was like one of those moments. And it's easy to, to see it now when you look back, but there was definitely something happened on that pitch at that moment when we went 1-0 up. And we, were, we still got 
um, you know, we'd still got, we're in March, so we've still got a lot of games to play. We were still um, a lot of points behind them. We were eight points behind them with, with three games in hand then, but they knew, and it was the eyes of the United players for me, that, and especially Gary Neville. Ah! <laughs> oh, I just love you. <laughs> It was just seeing Mark Overmars whip past him time to he really couldn't play against Mark. And, and at that moment, I, see, I saw in Gary Neville's eyes and a few of the other United players' eyes that they were done. And there was a long way to go. And they were a great side, but there was just something in the air that day. And we got in the dressing room after. And uh, we kind of just, we, weren't, we didn't over-celebrate, but we looked at each other and kind of nodded. And it was kind of a moment where you go, we're done. We've, done, we've won the league already. And obviously it culminated in that amazing sort of end to the season where Tony Adams gets a left foot volley to, mm-hmm. to in the back mm-hmm. of the net. You know, that, that didn't happen ever. And that, if that was, only, if it was ever going to happen, it was on that season. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for that as my moment. Okay, was that the best group you played with? You had a few different sort of eras with, with Orson in, in development. Was that the, the best sort of group era that you had around that 98-99 team? Yeah, that 98 double side was the best team I played in. And I'll, and I'll argue to I'm um, blue in the teeth or whatever the phrase is about Base. that side. And, yeah, so that side against the, um, the Invincibles, and yeah. I'll say that I obviously didn't play the Invincibles, and it might, it might say that had something to do with it. Um, <laughs> But I think if we played the Invincibles 10 times and there was no draws, mm-hmm. took the draws out of the equation, I think we'd beat the Invincibles six times and they'd beat mm-hmm. us four. I, I think it was a better side than the Invincibles, but the record would suggest not. Yeah. I, I just think that, that, that we had, had an Elker in the side his first mm-hmm. real season. He was unplayable. He yeah. literally was unplayable. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was better than Henri. Um, when Henri was would have been at the club for quite a long time. In that one season, he was just unplayable. Um, so I, yeah, the '98 side was probably the strongest. Hey, hey Zico, I've never, I've never asked you this real quick. Uh, what, what, um, how did you see the Vieira Keen rivalry thing? I mean, I, I know you, you, you like a hard man. Um, what, what was that like from from the Arsenal side of it? It was, it was brilliant. And Patrick was as cool and calm as collected as he, as he looked at times. And obviously when Roy was around, he wasn't very cool and mm-hmm. calm and collected. But he was so easy to wind up as well. He was, our, he was our go-to man when we needed a little bit. Not that you needed it before the game, but you kind of looked at him and we'd just say a few little things to him in the tunnel before we get to the tunnel where Roy would be. And, um, and to be honest with you, you didn't over-focus on it because I don't know if you noticed, but I had that that Welsh wizard to look after. So the <laughs> last thing on my mind was thinking about Keenan Vieira. I was kind of trying to find out where Giggsy was. So, But it was, it, was good. it was good. It was enjoyable to watch. You didn't want to get in between. Was not. Um, <laughs> and obviously Keown, Keown had really established himself at that point in that team, hadn't he, Lee, as well? But I mean, he was someone that you talk about winding your player up. He was someone that we used to wind up as opponents, Martin, because <laughs> you could convince him that he was actually not a very good footballer, even though he was an absolute nightmare. But in terms of dealing with him on a day-to-day basis at training, that must have taken some skill to look after him. Well, you always, when the 8v8 bibs are always getting thrown out, the manager will throw the bibs out. You make sure you get a green bib if Martin's got a green bib on. That's rule number one. 
But what a, I mean, what a defensive line you had that that period was. I mean, I, I agree with you. Played against both those teams, '98, and then the Invincible side, and and that that group you had, I think, in '98, there was something about you had so much um, depth in your in the quality of, of of players, how you could hurt teams. Yeah, and it was above all, it was fun. You know, Arsene was just. Mm. He, he just allowed, you know, he'd had a back four that had been together for a long time and he basically looked at us and he just went, just go and play. I mean, George Graham never said that to me, ever. Just go and play. It was kind of like, he was a throwaway mark. He just used to go, just go and play. Just go and express yourself. It was like, brilliant. And, it, and you couldn't give the ball away in that team, Graham. You know, I had Patrick inside me. I've got Dennis up front. I've got Nicholas and Elka running into the channel. I've got Ray Parler outside me. And I can not roll it back to, to, you know, Tony or Martin. So if you give the ball away at right back, you were one thinking player. Nick, I'll just really quick. Um, a lot of the younger fans, one of my great regrets um, in football, in, in a life in football as a fan, as a broadcaster, is I never went to Highbury. Um, and it's so sad. It's still there. The two main stands are still there. They're now uh, uh, apartments, aren't they? Because they, yeah. were, they were listed buildings. So the younger fans uh, in America probably don't, uh, they see the, the footage, but they probably don't really know much about Highbury as a ground. It was a special place, wasn't it? What was it like? It was. It, it, was. it was one of my favourite grounds I ever played. I played when I was playing for Stoke at Highbury. And I thought, I played in a League Cup game and I said, I want to play here. And about... Six weeks later, I ended up signing for Arsenal. It was kind of one of those moments. But the lads will tell you, if you ask most pros that play in the game, where's your favourite away ground? Although it was a hard place to go and play, but the actual, the, the, uh, the experience of the, you know, art deco dressing rooms, the, the, everything about it has just got pure class. The, and the, the lads heated floor you, deco. The heated floors were amazing. Uh, amazing. Yeah, but they used to... They used to turn them on and turn them right up so that when you went into the away dressing room, you'd be half asleep by the time you went out of the pitch. And if you, open, and if you open the window, being a Chelsea player, if you open the window to, to, to get some fresh air, you get dog's abuse from the fans walking past that way. <laughs> Which is so ironic because Dicko is so tight, he turns the heating off in his house. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. And just to go back to that Roy Keane patch of the air thing, if anyone's watching or listening to us and interested in that, Jewel. There's a brilliant documentary done by Gabriel Clark a few years ago. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you can find on online somewhere on YouTube if you just Google Vieira, Keane, and Gabriel Clark. It's really, really, really good. Um, Graham Lasso, you are up last. Uh, yeah, I mean, part of me would, as Carl was talking about watching the World Cup, part of me would love to say, you know, to, to start going on about the experience of a of playing in the World Cup in France in 1998. And given my French roots, it was almost a home tournament for me, to be honest. So um, that would be what certainly one experience that, that you know, I could talk about all day. But I think sort of echoing and, and going on from what Lee said, winning the league with Blackburn, um, because, because it's such a long journey to, to get to that point. Um, you know, it took us three seasons, really, to, to achieve the goal. And it was a team that was put together and, and, and the club owner, Jack Walker, um, brought people in when the team was still in the championship. Um, uh, Alan Shearer signed for Blackburn when they are in the championship and got promoted with them. Kenny Dalglish took over as manager. So the pedigree of, of personnel that Jack brought in, there was only one thing you thought about when you signed for Blackburn. That was you were being brought in to help the team win the league at some point. 
Now, we were playing against arguably the best team in Premier League history, the Manchester United side that won, uh, I think, three out of the first four and eight out of 11 in those Premier League um, early years. So, I mean, they were an absolute phenomenon, this, uh, this side. I think the other two leagues were won by Leeds Arsenal um, in, that, in that opening 11 years. Now, I signed in, in the transfer window used to end in March. Um, so, I signed deadline day of, of the transfer window of, of the 92-93 season. Um, and, you know, I'd had a, a, a difficult time at, at, at Chelsea in some ways, didn't really fit in and saw this as a, as a real opportunity to get my career to a level where I felt it could go if I was in the right environment. Kevin Gallagher signed from Coventry uh, the same day as myself. So he signed for quite a big fee from Coventry. And we both made our debuts that season against, uh, against Liverpool, funnily enough, and we, we bashed them all over the park. That season, we finished fourth in the league. So you imagine a team getting promoted and finishing fourth in the league. And we look at Sheffield United and think they're going some at the moment. Um, but, but for that Blackburn team, despite some of the money that was spent, it wasn't all big money on big players. Um, you know, to finish fourth was a huge achievement. But that, that was just a sort of a, a base camp, really, for what was to happen next. Um, second season, we ran United close and finished second. And that third season, 94-95, we won the league and, and the season started phenomenally. Christmas was huge for us. We picked up a lot of points over Christmas. Um, we were so confident and really knew the way that we played. Kyle and I just did a, a classic commentary on the, on the Blackburn Liverpool game from October. And Kyle, I think you were saying, weren't you, that you could see the identity of that Blackburn team then? You guys were good. Mm. And oh, so I like we, the top two. So, I mean, Sutton and Shearer, man, were unplayable. Yeah, and, and, and it was that sort of, that experience that we had together that we'd built something, you know, Lee, Lee sort of talks about it with, with his Arsenal experience. Just that, that understanding between all the players, the different units on the team, the trust you have in each other, what your, what your aim is, you know, Shearer was, our, was you know, top goal scorer for, for a good few seasons, I got the golden boot that season as well, I think with 34 goals. Um, and... I just think that 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 belief and the enjoyment that you can get from working so hard for each other, but knowing that what you do comes with results and gives you potential to achieve something. What we didn't know is how to handle the pressure of those last few games of, of, of a season when you're in total control of, of, of winning the Premier League. We were nine points, I think, ahead with, with not many games to go and Manchester United just wore us down. They did what Leeds Arsenal did to United. They did that to us. And, you know, you had the Ferguson mind games. Every time they played a game, he was on the radio saying it was in our hands. It's Blackburn's to lose. We, it really got under our skin and, and, and we looked very nervous. Um, we had one game against Newcastle at Ewood Park. And we'd been on a bad run. And Newcastle were a really exciting side. Kevin Keegan's team. Very much an unknown quantity in the way they could play. But at their best, they could beat anyone. And we played them at, at, uh, at Ewood Park and we beat them 1-0. Um, and I, you know, prided myself on, on creating chances for our strikers. And in that particular game, it was a tight match. I managed to just get in down, down the side of the pitch, get to the byline and dink a little, little sand iron back across into the, over the goalkeeper into the penalty area. And classic Shearer sort of bundled into the fullback and headed the ball in and we won the game 1-0. But that was the moment where we felt we'd just about done enough to nearly secure the league. Um, and uh, I remember going out onto the pitch afterwards with a friend of mine, walking down the side of the pitch, no one in the stadium. And uh, there, was a, there was a 
fantasy football program on with Badil and Skinner in, 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 in England. And they used to do this recreation of big goals, didn't they? Phoenix in the Flames, I think they called it. Mm. And me and this friend of mine, an old school friend from Jersey, she came, she'd come over to watch, watch the game with her father. And we were walking down the pitch and I said, look, let's do Phoenix in the Flames. You be Graham Lasso and I'll be Alan Shearer. And so she, you know, ran down the wing, crossed this imaginary ball to the far post. I headed it. Then we celebrated. And as we were walking away quite pleased with ourselves, all of a sudden we could hear this banging from the, uh, the director's boxes. And all the directors and loads of supporters had stayed behind after the game and had just watched the Jesus in front, of, in front of everyone. So it was a little bit embarrassing. But we, yeah, to finish, we got, we got over the line last game of the season at Anfield, lost to Liverpool 2-1. And they uh, and and luckily for us, Man uh, Manchester United only drew a West Ham down at Upton Park, and we secured the league. And and it was really weird afterwards. And again, Lee sort of said this with his first experience of winning the league. It was almost a slightly awkward feeling afterwards because nothing could nothing could live up to what you'd been through. Nothing could compare to the experience of doing it. You couldn't celebrate in the same way as look back on, on, on all the work that had gone into it. So spending that night trying to really enjoy yourself at a, at a party in Preston that we organised literally that evening because Kenny, there was no way Kenny was going to plan anything because that would have been bad karma. We ended up in a, in, a, in a restaurant bar in Preston trying to make the most of what was arguably the club's, well, what probably was the club's biggest achievement. Do you imagine, imagine if the crazy gang had won the league at any time? Oh. <laughs> the party would still be going, by the way. <laughs> would not be on this call. <laughs> That's brilliant. Hey, Graham, just, just, I mean, this is a quick question. Sorry, Becca, just for Leanne Graham. Mm. I mean, me and Robbie have talked about <clears throat> our experience in the Premier League is so different to, to Graham and Lee's. I just want to ask, I guess it's like a fan's question, really. The moment you won the Premier League, did you... Did you fully take it in? Did you, what did you feel like? I mean, your confidence must have been sky high. I mean, the, the epitome, the, the peak of, of what you can dream about. How did it make you feel? And do you still remember those moments very clearly? Yeah, I think, I think, I think the first one, as I said, was, was difficult to take in because we were so young. And then we won it again two years later in 91. Um, and that kind of felt... That kind of felt pretty good we only lost one game that season so I kind of you start to learn how to celebrate it's a really weird thing and then you kind of what happens it certainly happened for me the, 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 the more stuff you get to finals and you win stuff and you and playing at a club like you know it's, it's the standards are pretty high and the expectations are pretty high once you start winning stuff and they were at that team they, they then you're almost like second isn't good enough. So you, 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 your mentality changes completely. And you almost get, you almost, I always, I've got really impatient with um, losing games. Not that we, we like losing games, but got to the point where the competition was so high that you realised if you did lose a game, that was almost it. So you, it's, it was the pressure I found was something, it was almost addictive. You almost, it almost became a thing. And if you didn't have that in your life, that you were right on the edge of, of success or failure, anything else was just, wasn't worth bothering about. Yeah. So. And, and, and I think, I, I, I agree with you, Lee. I think that also, the, the, the de- when, when you're at a club where there's an expectation of, of winning, 
and people are bought in to win, there's, a, there's an added pressure that comes with that around every day in training. There's a, there's a, there's a bar that's set and it, it could be set by the coach, it could be set by the other players. And, and you find, I found when I first went to Blackburn, I found it really hard those first couple of weeks because just the training was so intense, the quality of training compared to the Chelsea I'd left. It, it, it's amazing how these filters get put onto the environment that you're in and then that dictates performance and good players crumble. Um, players that you don't necessarily expect to be able to handle that suddenly raise their game and they get that sort of, they take that responsibility. And I think, you know, we're all fortunate to have played a lot of football in our, in our careers. But I think the journey for me of, of winning that league is, is, still, is still so... Um, uh, so uh, clear because I, I just think that you're you're on such high alert all the time that that you you know that that you you do remember them. It's almost like it scars you slightly, um, but but definitely it makes you greedy because you know what best looks like, and then you know all of us want to want to recreate that. And if best happens to be around players that and and, and teams that are, are expecting you to deliver. Then, then you know everyone coming in has to meet that that um, that test. Talking talking of uh, delivery, uh, Bex, it's your turn, and I'm having a bet. It's got something to do with Crystal Palace. Here you go. Yeah, absolutely. You know what's really weird is that we're doing this um, podcast on the eighth of April, 2020. On the eighth of April, 1990, I was a nine-year-old girl sat on my sofa in Ealing, West London, having been to my first Palace game earlier that season. Um, we played against Everton. I think we lost. I'd sat in the Arthur Wake stand. My dad at that point didn't have season tickets because he worked a lot of weekends. So we only, he only went every now and then. On that particular day earlier on in that season, he had a spare ticket and there was kind of no one to go with. A lot of his mates were busy and he was like, oh. And I said, oh, I'll go. And he was like, all right, in 1989, girls at the football wasn't a really big deal. But I just wanted to spend time with my dad. I didn't really care where or what I was doing. So we went, and that was the moment where I thought, this is, this is unlike anything I've ever experienced. Obviously, I didn't actually have that thought, but looking back on it now, it obviously sucked me in. Fast forward to the end of the season, and Palace are, you know, as they are now, not very good. And we somehow <laughs> managed to reach the FA Cup semi-final, having never, by the way, and still never won the FA Cup or anything remotely that looks like the FA Cup. Um, <laughs> but there we were playing um, at Villa Park, which was used then as a neutral ground, as all of you guys know, um, playing Liverpool, who were about as good then as they are now, actually, under Kenny Dalglish. They were a really, really good team and had been for a long time. And we were no chance, absolutely no chance. And as you guys, I know, I'm telling you, you know this game, but the people who don't at home, the match was the most flip-floppy match ever. And except for the first half. First half, I think, went in Palace, were losing by a goal to nil. Come out the second half. And I remember sitting on my... My dad had gone to the game. He'd gone with his dad, with my grandpa. But it was so hard to get tickets, so I had to stay home. I think also in 1989, 1990 by then, my dad said, you know, it's no place for a girl. An FA Cup semi-final <laughs> in Birmingham is no place for my little blonde angel. Um, so I stayed at home and into the second half, John Pemberton, I just remember that image of him going down the right. I think that was the goal. And he set up Mark Bright and it was 1-1 very soon into the second half. So you started getting some hope. And then it all went crazy. And we scored three goals in the second half. Gary O'Reilly got the second 
um, Andy Gray, the original Andy Gray, wasn't the original Andy Gray, the other Andy Gray, um, equalized a couple of minutes before full time to make it 3-3 and took it to extra time. I mean, I was like, and, and this is only a two hour spell, of course, because it went to extra time. But I remember it feeling like it was the whole day. And I kept going to the kitchen and getting another glass of milk and going to the kitchen. I don't know why I was drinking milk. It was just, that's what I remember in my head. I was always having this glass of milk and watching this incredible game unfold. And I watched all the pre-game as well with Des Lynam. And it had just been like the biggest day of my life, I think, until then. Got into extra time. And of course, we all know, Super Alan Brigham. Card you scored the winner, and before that, I had a little uh, soft spot for <laughs> Super Al. But after that, oh my goodness! And that team with those wonderful players, because in those days it was the same team every week, pretty much. You know, you only well, you only allowed one substitute. I feel like, and I and I, everyone knew the team one to eleven. He just knew who they were, and I had them plastered all over my walls. And I remember, first of all, wishing so badly I'd been there, um, but. It was definitely the day that I went all in. I just went all in with Palace and, and the red and blue balloons. And every time I see Kenny Dalglish now or have interviewed him, all I see is that Kenny Dalglish face on the side because he was the Liverpool manager. Steve Coppel, I called my goldfish Coppel a couple of years later after Steve um, because he was just, he still is a Palace legend. And that day, I, I, I think it was the greatest day in the history of Crystal Palace, you know, because we got to the cup final, lost in the replay against Man United. Um, despite Ian Wright's best efforts in the first game. And then we got to the final in 2016, of course. I just had my little boy, so I couldn't come over because Teddy was about three weeks old. And we lost that one as well um, to Man United. So we've never sort of achieved anything other than promotion, which have all been brilliant. And I've been at so many playoff finals. But to beat Liverpool at Villa Park in the way we did it, with Super Al, who was the most unglamorous player ever, Super Al Apaji, turned in with the, with, the, with the kind of, he just was a really average player, and he just turned into a Palace hero, and of course, came back to manage us and all that. So that, for me, was my greatest, greatest football memory. And of course, I have, I recorded it. So for years and years after, I would get, if I had a spare Saturday, Sunday afternoon, I'd put it on from the moment that BBC One went live with Des Lynam all the way to the end. I used to watch it so many times, and, Oh, and then I told Super Al once that I uh, I was fell in love with him. That was thing right there. Yeah, <laughs> Bex, in honour of uh, Alan Pardew, can you do the dance that he did on the sideline? Uh, no, I can't. Oh, no, it was one, I had my little teddy three weeks old on my lap, and I saw him do the dance, and I just said, oh, well, I mean, now you've done a dance, we're not going to win. I mean, no, we're going to do a dance. Oh, hey, what story that would be. Um... I like. I mean, it, it, your passion as as a fan, by the way, comes through when when you're in the studio, which I think why, why people respond um, so well to, to to your coverage. I mean, it's clear how much you love the game. You know, it's interesting. Like, I, I don't know if the guys feel this way, but at, when you grow up a fan, and then you become a player, you you have a different relationship with the game, which is kind of a strange um, thing to reconcile with. You know, you, you and Arlo. Um, even though you, you know, you didn't go our route. I mean, obviously you're at the top of your game and in a way it's harder to do what you do because there's less slots. I mean, there's a lot of high level professional soccer playing jobs out there. Right. So um, how did it change for you when you went on the other side? Because um, that's gotta be a difficult balance. And Arlo talked about that before having to cover his team winning a title. 
the, the first few years of being a reporter at the BBC, I was sent to Palace quite a few times to interview players for Football Focus, which is the magazine show over there, um, every Saturday lunchtime. And I found that really hard because I was, I was just beside myself with excitement. And I was trying so hard to be so professional, so calm. So I found the first few years really hard. Um, then I was actually live on Final Score, which is the, the, the show over there where the, the games are happening and they go to all the reporters from BBC One to get updates. And Palace were playing Charlton in about 2004, five, I think it was, and they came to me live right at the end of the game because it was, it was the last day of the season and um, Palace lost and went down and got relegated. And the final whistle happened while I was live on BBC One. And I found that, in the moment, I found that okay. But as soon as I came off air, I found that really, really hard. I sat in my in the press box for an hour in tears after that. And I, and, I, and I don't know, I never watched it back. I don't know if I did a good job or not of reporting that live. Was I biased? Was I not biased? Was I, I don't know, I haven't got a clue. I never watched it back, I was too scared. No one said anything, so maybe it was okay. But as the years have gone by, I've actually found it easier because I do it more. So when Palace got promoted in 2013 at Wembley, I knew I was moving here two months later. And I was like, well, that's perfect. I get to cover Palace on the, in the Premier League when I moved to the States, so at least I can still watch them play all the time. Mm. And then I never thought in a million years they'd still be in the Premier League. I mean, that's not Crystal Palace. We don't stay in the Premier League for seven years. So in a funny way, it's got a bit easier, a bit easier. Um, and, but I'm still incredibly conscious of it and incredibly conscious when we're doing a live Palace game of not uh, like thinking, right, if I ask this question, would I ask this question if it was a different player? Would I ask this question if it was a different club? And so I'm constantly second-guessing myself. I don't know if Arlo feels the same when he's commentating on Leicester. Would I get that? <coughs> if it was another team you know I find that quite difficult constantly asking myself that question I think well, I think you do a phenomenal job but I'd lose it I'd freak out <laughs> and do a Gary Neville type scream celebration every time my <laughs> club scored I, I think when you um, when you get to the gantry at games, uh, and I talked to Graham and Lee about this quite a lot, it, having worked at the BBC for 10 years um, where you are totally completely objective and neutral and it gets drilled into you then I had a couple of years being a Seattle Sounders commentator and all of a sudden it was flipped on its head and I had to be the like the homer if you like and um, if, if one of the players missed an open goal instead of saying well goodness me a shocking miss you'd say well he might want that again and maybe he'd do something differently yeah. um, so you had to sort of tailor it for the audience and then of course joining uh, NBC we started off with the MLS coverage and then coming across to uh, coming home and doing the Premier League um, the, the BBC sort of mindset kicks back in again and, and it's hard to describe because on Twitter and you know I think social media can be a really positive place and also after after big games when one team has lost a big team has lost it can be quite uh, toxic and I try not to get too involved in 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 spats with people afterwards because a lot of people want to blame the commentator for their team's appalling performance or disappointing results and you have to sort of step away from that and all I'd say is when you get to the gantry and you pick up a microphone you are no longer well, like this is how I feel I'm no longer a fan you've done the research you 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 treat both teams exactly equally and you tell the story of the game uh, that's there and it's hard to get that across sometimes to, to fans that people say it must be really difficult when you're doing Leicester well no it's not actually I might know a little bit more about them um, because I take more of an interest in them obviously but uh, if, if a goal is scored against Leicester I give it exactly the same as uh, as any other team scoring a the goal. only heckling you can't avoid is that from Lee Dixon standing right next to you well I mean that just comes with the job <laughs> that comes with the job and the bruise on the other, right? he keeps hitting me on the arm if I say something he doesn't like <laughs> um, but that, that's <laughs> it 
<laughs> oh, no, the, other, the other problem, Arlo, I don't know if you found that, is that when you're in the UK, even though if you're at the BBC like we both were, you are very neutral. It's, you don't hide who you support in, in, you know, day in, day out. And even if you work for Talk Sport or for Sky, or for any, you know, you don't hide who you support. So everyone knew I was a Palestine, everyone knew you were a lesser fan. You moved to the States, and one thing I didn't realize is that you're not allowed to support anybody. Like, if you're a sports host, I have no idea who Mike Tariq I know Mike Tariq went to Syracuse University, and he loves the, that college, but I have no idea who he supports in the professional game of any yeah. sport. And the same with all of those top-level sports, sports broadcasters. You haven't got a clue, and it's like, oh, right, that's how you guys do it. So <laughs> it's quite different, but the cat was already out of the bag with both yeah. of us. So. Yeah, you can't put it back in, can you? Yeah. No. No. Quickly, Bex, one last thing, quickly. Who's your all-time favourite Palace player? Ian Wright. Ian Wright is my all-time favourite, and he just started following me on Instagram this week, and that, <laughs> can I tell you, has made the quarantine what it is. I mean, it's done. Ian Wright and I. Bezies again. Yeah. Guys, it's been great, as always. That's been our Premier League on NBC podcast. Thank you all for joining us, for listening, for watching you five, six... Six, thank you for tuning in as well and dialing in. We'll do it all again next week. Um, make sure that you get this podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's also available on the NBC Sports YouTube channel as well. Gentlemen, stay where you are. Don't leave those houses. Bye. Stay inside. Take good care. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. See you later. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.